This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. I know right away some of you who come here every Sunday are saying, well, what do I do with my Connect card? Well, we're going to give you a way to hang on to that and... and uh, We'll work with that a little bit later this morning and show you how to turn that in. So um, you can just hang on to that. Kevin's going to give you some very special instructions later on. We'll have people waiting at the doors. Let's talk about becoming a multi-generational family. Um, I want to invite you to do a couple things. Open your programs, pull out your fill-in-the-blank notes, and uh, let's get ready uh, to work on that. For those of you who are brand new, if I've never met you, my name is Ron. Uh, I happen to be New Life Senior Pastor, and I'll be in the lobby afterwards. I would love to meet you before you get out of here, Um, just because I'd like to know who I had the opportunity to teach, and because you make a difference. It's it's you're not here by accident, and so I invite you to stop by and at least shake my hand before you get out of here. I want to take you directly to the Scripture, directly to God's Word, and we're going to read four passages of Scripture and draw a couple of uh, points out of them. The first says, old people are proud of their grandchildren. i got a problem with that verse already. Yeah, all right, you have figured out. It it implies that if you have grandchildren, you, you, well, yeah, you have that O word up there. Anyway... The truth is, old people, grandparents, are proud of their grandchildren, and children are proud of their parents. How many generations are referred to in that verse? Three. Let's go to the next one. Paul writes to Timothy, who is a wonderful young pastor that he is training. He says, you have an honest faith, and what a rich faith it is. It was handed down from your grandmother Lois to your mother Eunice, and now to you. How many generations in that verse? Three. Let's read a third passage. Paul writes and says, If a widow has children or grandchildren, these are the ones who should take the responsibility for kindness should begin at home, supporting needy parents. This is something that pleases God very much. How many generations are represented in that verse? Again, three. Now, in each of those three settings, there's something different going on in the family. In this verse, it's, it's as the parents and grandparents get older and cannot take care of themselves. Who's supposed to do that? The family is supposed to do that. And in the earlier, in the verse just before that, in the communication of faith, Paul says, this is a faith that came from your grandmother and then to your mother and then to you. It when it comes to the communication of faith, it doesn't just happen inside the nuclear family with mom and dad and the kids. The grandparents are supposed to be involved in that process as well. And then in the former one, the one we read at the very beginning, in terms of just pure enjoyment and taking pride in one another, God says that's to be a multi-generational experience. You know how important this is? Well, the fourth verse I want to read to you is a verse written about John the Baptist who came to prepare the way for Jesus. 
And, you know, if you were there and you were going to prepare the way for Jesus, what you would attend to should be the most important things in the world. And notice what the Bible says about John. John will be a man with the spirit and the power of Elijah, the prophet of old. He will precede the coming of the Lord, preparing the people for his arrival. So what does that mean? Notice this. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, and he will change disobedient minds to accept godly wisdom. You see, John was going to go right to the heart of the issue, and that is, if the family is going to succeed, and if it's going to truly be a multi-generational family, there's going to have to be a good relationship between fathers and their children. And you could expand that to say between mothers and their children, because if children don't get along with their father or their mother, the chances of them having a truly multi-generational experience while they grow up is slim to none. It just won't happen. So right up front, God says the best families in the world are going to be multi-truly multi-generational families. Why would he say that? Well, I'm going to give you five reasons, and I'm not really going to comment on any of them. I'm just going to read them to you, but it, because they're pretty simple, I think you'll get it. Take a look. Number one, it trains family members in, to be unselfish and flexible. It's not all about me or my generation. Number two, it equips the children to be successful in the multi-generational marketplace because the marketplace truly is multi-generational. So it equips them to know how to, how to relate to people from all generations. Number three, it enables the coming generation to build on the wisdom and the experience of previous ones. My mom used to say this to me, son, learn from my mistakes and the mistakes of others because you cannot afford to make them all yourself. True, okay? Can, can, can build on that wisdom. Number four, it creates a stable yet progressive culture. We're gonna, I'll show you how that works later on in the teaching this morning. But when the family is truly generational, it has the right amount of stability, but it also has the right amount of progression in it. So it's not just old, stuck, and boring. And number five, it makes life fun at every age and stage. Because when the family is a truly multi-generational experience, everyone, no matter what generation, belongs in it, feels loved, treasured, and it's fun for them. So that's our goal. So how are we going to achieve that? Well, before we get into how we're going to achieve that, it's important for me to walk us through what I call a caveat. And the caveat is this. There's a little humor in here, but there's a whole lot of truth. Take a look at the caveat. Every family tree grows a few nuts, lemons, and bad apples. Have you noticed? We all, I mean, we could tell stories the rest of the morning about the nuts, lemons, and bad apples in our family, right? <laughs> Truly, I, I, one in my family, I won't tell you any stories. It's just that my, when my younger brother was two years of age, he labeled my aunt Uncle Thelma. And it stuck because it was a well-deserved title. Well, I know, that's sad, isn't it? Every, uh, when Thelma came to family gatherings, 
I, I shouldn't tell you this. Have you ever taken pepper and put pepper on water and then taken a bar of soap and put the bar of soap in the pepper? Nobody's ever done that. Yeah, what happens to the pepper? He goes, it just scatters. That was Uncle Thelma at a family reunion. <laughs> okay? That's a, it's exactly what happened. Every family has those. So what do we do with them? I want you to know this truth. Because when I talk to you about becoming a truly multi-generational family, you're going to go out and you're going to try to bring these people and involve them in some meaningful way in your family. And right off the bat, you're going to go, oh my goodness, does that mean... Okay, here's the truth. Extraordinary families, those who have it together, understand they will not be able to fully engage those nuts, lemons, and bad apples. You have to find a place for them in your family, but it's, what shall I say, you have to keep them in that place. And it will not be a place of full engagement in your family, or they will dominate the culture of your family, and it won't be fun for you or anybody else. That's okay. God would have you do that. It doesn't mean you shun them, but it means you invite them carefully and you plan things that, that you make sure you don't go up to them and say, hey, by the way, you're one of the nuts in our family. We have a special place for you. Please stay over there. No, you have to be more subtle than that, more wise than that, but you still have to know how to engage them and it won't be a place of full engagement. So with that little caveat in mind, let's talk about three things that extraordinary families do that make it a truly multi-generational experience for everyone involved. Number one, they don't place one generation at the center of the family. Now, I've touched on that a couple of times in this series, but I want to touch on it once again and break it out a little fuller because there's there's a couple of scenarios that sort of lend themselves to this. The first scenario is um, if you have a family that has sort of a natural matriarch or patriarch, and they just sort of determine the culture for the whole family, and everybody's just sort of kowtows to whatever they want and, and so forth, that's what I'm talking about. If it's going to be a truly multi-generational experience, you cannot allow that person to become the center or the hub of the family because everybody else gets neglected in the process. And it's all about whatever it takes to make this person happy. It's the opposite of what you're actually trying to teach and train your children and grandchildren in. Because if everybody kowtows to whoever that person is, you're actually training your children that, that if you really want attention, here's how you get it. You become obnoxious and controlling, and eventually people give in to you. That's not what you want to teach them. There's another setting, and this is far more common, and it's the one I'm going, to, I'm going to spend a little time dealing with this morning, and that is it's so popular in this culture and in our day and age to take children and put them at the center of the family and to have this child-centered model of the family. Now, that, it, it might be slightly better than neglecting them, but that's a long ways from what it should be. God, God never says, make your children the center of your family. You know, I like to think of it like this, and that is, the family should be like a pie. 
And in the pie, there are slices of the pie, but in every slice of the pie, there should be cherries, correct? If it's a cherry pie, there should be crust, and there should be whipped cream, and maybe sugar, right? Yeah. And if you hand me a piece of pie and there's no crust on it, I'm going to go, hey, wait a minute. Well, it's a cherry pie. What do you expect? It's cherries. No, I expected a cherry pie. Yeah. Or it doesn't have whipped cream or it doesn't have sugar or whatever else it should have. Every piece should have that, not just some. And that's the way the pie, that, that a pie is supposed to be. That's the way a truly multi-generational family is supposed to be. It doesn't just have one thing at the center and everything goes around that one thing. No, it, it, it has to be blended together. That's always been God's design for the family. So now how do we do that? Let me give you some very practical suggestions on how to do that. And the first is rotate family activities around the preferences of the different generations. If you have young children at home, don't always, when it's time to go out to eat, look at the kids and go, do you want to go to McDonald's or Burger King? You know, at some point you need to say, you know, your mother and I want to go to this barbecue place or wherever it is that you want to go. Choose activities. By the way, it's good for your children to learn how to bend to and participate in activities that you enjoy as well. One other thing, you probably thought this through. If every time you do an activity that you want to do, but you know it might not be your children's favorite activity, if you just get a babysitter and leave them at home, have you taught them anything? Shake your head like this. No, you haven't taught them anything. Because you have not taught them at all to come and participate in the activities of your generation. And not just your generation, you should teach them how to participate in the activities that would be the preference of their grandparents. Yeah, I know, you have to think about that. But boy, it will pay huge dividends. So when you're planning family activities, rotate those so that everyone gets to participate in the activities that might be preferred by each of the individual generations. A second thing that you can do, and this is a lot of fun. It, by the way, when you make your family multi-generational, it will bring with it some awkward moments. Okay? Just know that up front. But if you're willing to go through the awkward moments, what it pays is huge. Okay? Here's, here's an example. Practical suggestion number two is regularly place the generations at the same table for family dinners. You know how most families are when it's Easter and the whole family is together. We've got two or three tables and here's the old duffers over here. Here's the middle-aged duffers here and all the kids are over there, right? That's usually how it works. That's not bad. There are times when that's, that's good. But I want to challenge you to make a seating chart and put Grandpa and a grandchild, and then somebody from another generation, and mix all the generations around the table and, and show them how. Call them to interact with each other. Uh, you will be amazed that if you do it right, the kids will act adult, far more adult than they will over there sitting by themselves. 
the subject matter will be far more, there will be less food fights. And there will be less timeouts and all those other things that come when you put a bunch of kids at a table by themselves. What you're doing is you're calling them to a multi-generational experience. I don't do that every time because it's fun to have the kids by themselves and that stuff too. The, the idea is learning how to do this so that, it, so that you have a little bit of everything. The third thing is this. Where possible, involve all the generations in making family decisions. That's a great thing. And if you stop and think about it, there are a number of decisions that you can make as a family that you can actually sit down even with your grade school children and involve them in making those decisions. Not whether to get a credit card or not. Okay? Not that, but all sorts of things. If you have more than one bedroom in your family and you're going to rotate bedrooms, why not sit down with the children and guide them through making that decision, having them give input so that when it's time to shuffle all the furniture, they've at least had a voice in where their furniture goes and their stuff goes. And you go, oh man, you don't have any idea what kind of tension that would create in our home. All the kids would want the same room. Woohoo! You have a normal family. So how are you going to train them to be unselfish if you just tell them, no, you're not sleeping in there, you're going to sleep over here? You haven't taught them anything. But if you bring them together and you make those decisions as a family, and when they all say, I want that room, I want that room, then you can say to them, what would be fair? Who's had that room recently? Who, do, who hasn't had that room who actually would be most benefited by that room. Now you're starting to teach them to think like adults, not just like spoiled children. It's a multi-generational decision. You can do that with family vacations as your children get a little bit older. Many, many things that you can do that. If you begin to think it through, what you're doing is you have these wonderful opportunities in this multi-generational setting to actually teach and train your children. Let's go to the second thing that truly multi-generational families do. They embrace both generational change and constancy. That's a challenge for every generation. Generational change. Let me tell you a story out of my own life. And um, I've told you stories. I know several of you have said, thank you, thank you, thank you. I went home and I used that on my kids. Um, So I'm going to tell you a story you might not thank me for, all right? But I want you to hear it anyway because it's true. I was 18 years of age and it was time for me to get my first car. And uh, you can remember those days. And so I went to my dad and I said, Dad, uh, is there any way that you would co-sign for a loan for me? I'd never had a job before. I got my first job and it was 20 miles out of town. It was the only job I could get. And so I had to have transportation. And so... Uh, I said, Dad, would you co-sign a loan for me to get a car? And he said, well, let's go look. So we went down to look. Now, my dad owned a Dodge Dart. It was boring green. It was a four-door. It was sort of the antithesis of what I would want. It had a pint-sized motor. It, it, he loved it because, you know, he bought it for gas mileage. And um, so we go down to pick out a car, and he said to me, son, well, what kind of car would you like? 
And, um, you know, I looked around and I saw a car. It was a 1967 Chevelle. (laughs) Convertible. With a V8. And four speed on the floor. And the top had been so well taken care of that in the sunlight it was hard to look at that white top because it was just pristine and clean. I said, that looks really good. (laughs) Now, I want you to hear the conversation that went between my dad and me. He said, I can tell that you would really like that car. And he said, I've noticed this, that when you have driven my car, you have driven it very sensibly. I've seen you drive when you didn't know I was watching you drive. And you have grown up to be a wonderfully mature Christian young man. So I want to ask you a question. If I help you buy that car, will you drive it like a Christian young man should? I said, yeah, I will. Do you see any tension between the generations at that point? You want to know the end of the story? My dad said, son, I believe you. I'll help you buy that car. And that was my first car. Now, fast forward, I've been driving now 42 years. 42 years I've had one speeding ticket. And it was a long time after I bought that car. You know, my dad actually knew me pretty well. Okay? But you know what my dad didn't do? He didn't say, son, if a Dodge Dart is good enough for me, it's good enough for you. No, he recognized that I was from a different generation. He recognized that I had different preferences. And rather than just trying to make me to be like him or make fun of me or, 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 or any of those things, he recognized that that he didn't need to be threatened by the fact that I would choose a different car than what he might choose. You can't do that with every child. He would not do that with my older brother because of the way my older brother drove. I love him. Great guy. He was crazy in high school. So there you go. That He would tell you that. That's how that worked. Now, let me give you some practical suggestions on how to embrace this generational change and constancy, okay? The first thing is you have to intentionally work at finding value and enjoyment in the cultures of all generations. This works up the scale and down the scale. You know the one thing I didn't do? If I had sat around and made fun of my dad and made fun of his boring kind of dark green Dodge Dart that didn't go very fast and had no class, it was not cool at all, then I would have created this animosity in our generational gap and he would be far less likely to sign for me. But because I honored him and respected him, even though that wasn't the kind of car that I would choose to drive myself, it created this wonderful bond between the two of us 
so that later on, and I had no idea, I wasn't smart enough to think, you know, if I really honor my dad someday, I'll get a 67 Chevelle convertible. No, I wasn't nearly that bright. But that's how it played out because we were finding values. I found out later my mother loved my car. And some of you know my mom. And so she would say to me from time to time, Ron, could I borrow your car? <laughs> yeah, mom. Let me go down and let me go out and put down the top because I knew she didn't want to borrow it unless she could have the top down, right? So I go out and I put the top down for her and I'd watch her drive. Now she hated to shift, right? So when she drove my car, she would get in. Straight from first to fourth. That's exactly how she drove my car. (laughs) But she was styling because she was driving in a convertible. Now, you know, the interesting thing is, it's that when the generations learn to be comfortable with each other and learn to find value and enjoyment in what the other values and enjoys, there's this wonderful mutual respect that brings with it healthy change, but also a constancy, a healthy stability. And I'm going to give you some application that has to do with music. Because probably in no other arena of life is there more generational change than in music. You've heard it. The kids say, that's elevator music. And the parents say, when are you going to turn off that noise? Can I ask you to get rid of all that from your vocabulary? You're not going to help anything with those kinds of remarks. Whatever your children's music is, if it's not sinful in and of itself, if it's gangster in its origin, no, don't embrace that. Teach your children what's wrong with that, okay? But it's not the fact that it's in rap style, because I can tell you, you can search your, your, your Bible from beginning to end, and there is nothing in there that says, Thou shalt not rap. <laughs> Got it? God doesn't have a musical preference. Okay? So, so get off of that bandwagon and try to find, you know, my parents enjoyed a different kind of music than I enjoy. And my grandparents enjoyed a different kind of music than my parents enjoyed. And my kids enjoyed a different kind of music than I enjoy. And I'm sure my grandkids are going to enjoy a different kind of music than their parents enjoy. But you know something? I've decided I'm going to learn how to enjoy it all. That way, when I'm with my grandparents, I can enjoy all that stuff from the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, all that stuff. When I'm with my parents... They were in the 40s. I can enjoy that stuff. I hope my kids can enjoy my kind of music, which was, you know, the Beatles and beyond, that sort of thing. I grew up right in the heart of that and and, and so forth. It's learning how to find value in what the other generations do. It's way better than resisting it. I can tell you that. Okay? Second uh, suggestion would be this. Embrace general change as both normal and healthy. It is normal. Thank God that your children don't want to be just like you. Wouldn't you want better for them than that? I'm not actually putting you down. But yeah, wouldn't you want better than that? Sure. I would want my kids to have 
their own creativity and so forth. I think it's a great, great thing. Embrace it as both normal and healthy and quit trying to fight against it. There's a third thing that I want to talk to you about, and that is this. Extraordinary families, they, they value and they continue family traditions. Did you know your family traditions are an integral part of your family identity? Even right now, there are families that, hey, every Labor Day weekend, we go to Lake Tahoe. That's part of their family identity. And by the way, if you're listening on the podcast later, I'm talking about you, all right? There you go. Yes, every Labor Day, we go we go to Lake Tahoe and we have a great time. The kids enjoy it. I talked to you about a family tradition last week that, that needs to be more than a tradition, but it should be a tradition, and that is you ought to make, number one, getting your family to church together every single Sunday so that your kids never get up and say, hey, are we going to go to church today? No, you know. And by the way, when it's your family tradition to go to Lake Tahoe on Labor Day, the kids never say, hey, are we going to go to Tahoe this Labor Day? They just know. It's our family tradition. I would tell you that I owe a huge debt of gratitude to Monica. She was a master family tradition builder and remains so to this day. Um, I, I will be forever grateful to her for what she did in our family with this. Because it brought such a stability to our family, such a predictability to our family, and those traditions had things in them that every generation would enjoy. And even to this day, our kids and grandkids look forward to some of those traditions. They're just that deep and that rich and that good. So let's, let, me, let me give you some practical suggestions on how to do that. Number one, it's important to intentionally build into each tradition some natural enjoyment for every generation. If your family tradition is, I don't know what it might be, playing cards somewhere, well, your five- and six-year-olds are going to have a hard time any, with any natural enjoyment in that. So you're going to have to expand that family tradition so it's got something in there for the small children. Be, be creative. Pray through it. Be thoughtful. Be intentional. But when you're putting together your Easter family tradition or your Thanksgiving family tradition or your Christmas family tradition or your, your, your family reunions, whatever, whatever you're doing that is a big multi-generational family tradition, make sure it doesn't center just around the kids or just around the middle-aged people or just around the grandparents. Fold a bunch of stuff in there that gives natural enjoyment to all the generations. Secondly, give each successive generation the freedom to replace some of the traditions with their own. Your kids are going to grow up. They're going to have families of their own. And if you expect them to keep all your traditions, they'll never have any of their own with their own family. So you've got to be sensitive about that and work at that. But if you've done those family traditions well, many of them they will keep and find a way to fold their family into. But you've got to give them the freedom to step out and say, we're going to have our own Easter tradition with our family and you have to bless them in that. As we close, I'm going to give you some options, and then I'm going to pray, and and, um, we'll turn it over to Kevin, because he's going to lead us in how we can uh, get involved in life groups. 
So I want to start at the bottom of the list. So if you will take out, you know, they're on the bottom of your teaching notes, but take out your Connect card as well, because they're on the Connect card. I'm going to start at the very bottom. I want to become a follower of Christ. Everything I've taught you about becoming a multi-generational family and how that adds richness and fullness to your family and will make it more functional and more effective, well, it kind of begins with you becoming a follower of Christ. Because at the core of what's happening in your family needs to be the sense of eternity and the sense of God and faith. And it begins with you. So if you've never made that decision, I want you to check that box and and we will get in touch with you this week and we'll lead you through how to do that. Then right above that, I will work on developing healthy, multi-generational family traditions. Boy, if that's a weak area in your family, check that and go to work on that this week and and figure out, even if you're a grandparent, what can I do? How can I work with my children and my grandchildren and create one or two of these multi-generational family experiences every year? Above that, I will find joy in the values and cultures of other generations. If you've been one of those that said, why don't you turn off that noise? You need to check that box and go to work on that. Above that, I will work on correcting the child-centered model of our family, especially if you have young children. I'm talking about toddlers and, and young grade school children. If you have inadvertently fallen into a child-centered family where everything is around the kids, you need to check that box and go to work on that. And then, last of all, up at the top, I will institute boundaries in my families. in my family to keep those, you know, the nuts and the lemons and the bad apples where they should be so that we can actually develop our family as it should. I'm going to give you space to do your business with God. Let me pray. Father, bless you, thank you, honor you this morning. Thank you for teaching us that family should have multiple generations and, and not just to keep each generation in its own cage but that our families are richer when those generations feel comfortable together and they interact together and they honor each other. Would you guide us now as we respond? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.